Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And today I'm going to talk about post-op nausea and vomiting, commonly known as PONV. A very important topic, one that may not be as glamorous as going on and off cardiopulmonary bypass, but that has a huge impact on patient satisfaction, as well as other things that we'll talk about, and is very high yield also for boards as these things are asked about frequently. All right, let's jump right in. So a lot of this is coming from some great resources out there. There's an article by Smith, uh, actually it's by Smith, Smith, and Smith, which I thought was great. I don't know if they're related, but Smith HS, Smith EJ, and Smith BR. Uh, which is uh, is kind of fun, and it's called post op operative nausea and vomiting. It was published in the Annals of Palliative Care Medicine in 2012, and it's a really nice kind of summary. And then there's another interesting one that's uh, got a little different take by Delustro. Um, it was published in the uh, Journal of Anesthesia and Intensive Care Medicine in just this year, 2017, called Post Operative Nausea and Vomiting: 168 Years in Review. So both of those are interesting. UpToDate also has um, a, a little bit of a good review on there that you can check out, all right? And so I'm drawing from those resources uh, in what we'll discuss now. All right, so first, let's talk about why we care and who's at risk, okay? So first of all, why do we care about postoperative nausea and vomiting? So 30% of people will have postoperative nausea and vomiting after surgery, which is quite high. Even people with no risk factors still have a 10% chance. And people with risk factors, people with three risk factors, have about a 61% chance. And people with four risk factors, a 79% chance of having postoperative nausea and vomiting. So it's really quite a significant percentage of people who experience it. And then it is associated with quite a lot of morbidity. So increased cost, increased admission, if it's happening in an ambulatory care setting where the patient was supposed to go home, increased length of stay if it's in an inpatient setting. It can have other uh, consequences such as suture dehiscence, aspiration, even esophageal rupture, increased intracranial pressure, and pneumothorax. All of those have been shown to be potential consequences of postoperative nausea and vomiting. So obviously, if we can prevent this or at least mitigate it, that would be huge. All right, so let's talk about risk factors. The most commonly used score to risk stratify people is the APFEL score. That's A-P-F-E-L, APFEL. And there are, it's nice because it's simple. There are four risk factors. So being female, now this is, means post-puberty female. So a, a female child does not have uh, an increased risk over a male child. But if you're a post-puberty female, that's one. A non-smoker, so the one time that it actually is beneficial to be a smoker is, is to help prevent nausea and vomiting after surgery. A history of motion sickness or prior post-operative nausea and vomiting. And the use of post-operative Opioids. So those four are the parts of the APFEL score. I'll say them again. Being a post-puberty female, non-smoker, having a history of either motion sickness or post-operative nausea and vomiting, 
and then using post-operative opioids. So those four are the APFEL score. And as I said, if you have only if you have none of them, you only have a 10% risk. If you have three of them, you have a 61% risk, and if you have four of them, a 79% risk. And then if you have one, you're somewhere around 20, and if you have two, somewhere around 40. So it's fairly linear progression. All right, other factors that have been shown in various studies to play a role in risk but that are not a part of the APFEL score are being a little younger, so an age less than 50, having a history of chemo-induced nausea and vomiting, and those have a relative risk of about 2 Volatile anesthetics, as compared to not having being exposed to them, have a relative risk of about 2.3 to 2.4. Although those, the risk of nausea and vomiting from volatile anesthetics is probably limited just to the early postoperative period, which makes sense because they're fairly quickly out of your system. So there isn't an increased risk of nausea and vomiting at, for example, 24 hours just in the first initial postoperative period. Not that that doesn't make it significant, but just so you know. Propofol is definitely protective and reduces the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting by about 20%. And sometimes we think of that as you may just run some propofol in the background uh, for someone with a high risk of post-op nausea and vomiting. Sometimes I will just start a propofol drip in addition to everything else at even just 20 mics per kilo per minute just to have a little bit of that effect from the propofol for someone who we know is really high risk. Now, a lot of people would say, and I often as well will say for someone with, who's truly high risk, just do a TIVA so you're using quite a lot of propofol and get rid of the volatile anesthetic completely. But we'll talk about that more in a little bit. You may hear a lot that nitrous is a cause of post-op nausea and vomiting, and that's actually very controversial. So there was a meta-analysis in 2010 by Fernandez Gisa Sola uh, and colleagues that was published in uh, Anesthesia, and that's the one with the AE, Anesthesia, and it showed that there was a small increased risk, especially for women, but that if antiemetics were used like a propofol infusion, that that eliminated the increased risk. So there it really it's unclear whether nitrous uh, and we we almost never don't give any antiemetic we at least for example give zofran to almost everybody and so if antiemetics eliminate the increased risk from nitrous then maybe nitrous shouldn't be considered to increase nausea and vomiting in any meaningful way neostigmine and glycopyrrolate often you'll hear that that neostigmine can increase the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting it turns out that has not been borne out in studies it does not seem to increase the risk. How about kids? So kids are a little different. The risk score, the kind of equivalent to the APFEL score, the risk score for kids includes the following variables. Age greater than three, a duration of surgery greater than 30 minutes, strabismus surgery is a huge risk factor, a history of post-op vomiting or a relative with post-op vomiting. All right, so those are the four. And if you have zero of those risk factors, again, just like adults, you have 10%. One risk factor, 30% risk. Two risk factors, 50% risk. And if you have three or four risk factors, you're up to a 70% risk. Now, if you take out strabismus surgery, in other words, if they're not having strabismus surgery, but you have the other risk factors, then if you have zero, that's only a 3% risk, interestingly. One, 11%, two, 30%, and three, 40%. So, again, there's some variability from study to study, but that's about right. Remember, uh, that means that 
aside from strabismus, strabismus surgery, kids are at a little bit lower risk uh, than adults. And that should be easy to remember because, for sure, my kids can go on any amount of spinning machinery. They can go on those things on the playground that just spin around like crazy until their eyes are full of nystagmus and they're stumbling around and can't walk straight and they don't get nauseous at all. And if I even look at something spinning in a circle these days, I get nauseous immediately. So clearly there's something about age that makes you more prone to nausea. I think that's true for most of us. All right. What receptors are involved in nausea and vomiting? So a variety, muscarinic M1 receptors, D2 receptors, histamine H1 receptors, the 5-hydroxytryptamine serotonin receptor, that's the 5-HT3 serotonin receptor, and the neurokinin-1 substance P receptor, that's the NK1 receptor. The brain regions that are involved, I'm going to divide up by the central stimulation and peripheral stimulation. So what I mean by that is, let's say that you have some stimulation from your vestibular system. So like I was saying, spinning around, that goes to the vomiting center, or what used to be called the vomiting center, which is now called the central pattern generator in the medulla, and that central pattern generator receives those signals directly from the vestibular system. But for peripheral stimulation, for example, irritation of the gastrointestinal tract that can cause nausea or an overly full stomach, those go to the nucleus tractus solitarius in the brainstem, which is near or in the area postrema, which is also called the chemoreceptor trigger zone, and that's probably one you've heard a lot. That's at the base of the fourth ventricle in the medulla, and then once it gets there to the chemoreceptor trigger zone, that communicates with the central pattern generator also in the medulla. So remember, I think the key things to keep in mind there are peripherally, you want to be able to at least recognize those names, nucleus tractus solitarius, carrying those to the area postrema, the chemoreceptor trigger zone, and where that is, keep in, kind of remembering your brain where that is. It's at the base of the fourth ventricle and the medulla. Those are probably the most commonly tested aspects of that. All right, let's go into a little more detail about prevention and treatment. So when treating or trying to prevent post-op nausea and vomiting, combination therapy is clearly more effective than monotherapy. So each additional therapy tends to be additive in other words, if one therapy decreases the risk by 20%, and that takes you from, just to make the numbers easy, 100% down to 80%, and now another therapy decreases by 20% as well, it will then take you from 80% down another 20% from there, which will take you to about 65%. So you continue to get an increased treatment effect with each additional agent, which is why you want to do multimodal therapy. So let's go through some things that have been studied. So one is using NSAIDs to try to lower the amount of opioids used, and that has been shown to be effective. You'd think Tylenol would also be helpful in the same way, but studies haven't been as clear about Tylenol. But for whatever reason, NSAIDs, in, in place of at least some opioids, tend to reduce the risk. Tiva definitely reduces the risk over using volatile anesthetics. And again, though, that has only been found to be immediately when you look at 24 to 48 hours and certainly later, 72 hours and beyond, it doesn't have a, a, any difference in effect. Decadron, so a commonly used 
approach, as you probably know, is to give about four to eight milligrams, usually four milligrams of decadron, dexamethasone, at the beginning of a case. And that does reduce the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting by about 25%. The other super common intervention, of course, are 5-HT3 receptor antagonists, the most common that we use at least being Zofran. There are a whole, that's on, on Dancitron, there are a whole variety that fall under that same category. It probably actually doesn't matter when it's given. It's commonly thought to be best to give at the end of a case so that you have a longer effect, but studies have shown that at least for early post-op nausea and vomiting, it doesn't matter whether it's given in the middle of the case or at the end. And that also, similar to Decadron, reduces the risk by about 25%, though it's an independent pathway from Decadron, and so those two are additive. Studies have looked at 8 milligrams versus 4 milligrams. There's certainly some controversy there, with some studies showing no difference, 8 versus 4, and some showing that you get a little bit of both a more a higher effect and a longer-lasting effect with 8 milligrams. So maybe for people at really high risk and who you're not really worried about using that higher dose of Decadron, meaning they're not diabetic, you're not worry, worried about causing a little bit more hyperglycemia, maybe you just go ahead with the 8 for them, but use 4 as your standard dose. You should certainly figure out what the standard protocol in your hospital is, and there's, there's not enough evidence here to suggest you should be changing that. If the protocol is 4, stick with 4. Using propofol, as we mentioned, decreases, uh, depending on the study, by uh, quite a lot, but on average, using propofol will decrease the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting by about 20%. And if it's TIVA, meaning propofol with no gas, then a little more, probably up to 25%. One medication that was shown to be very effective but is now almost impossible to get, at least in the United States, was droperidol. It came in 2001, a black box warning came out because of a risk of increase of torsad with the use of droperidol. There's a lot of controversy over whether the doses used for post-op nausea and vomiting prophylaxis have anything to do with the increased risk of torsad, at least above or beyond any of the other medications we use. But because of that black box warning, it's almost impossible to get here. Now, in some other countries, my understanding is it's much easier to get and maybe still used and can certainly be very effective for this purpose. There is a lot of controversy about Reglan, metoclopramide. It is certainly a pro-motility agent, so used, for example, for gastroparesis. And so the thought is that, well, if it helps empty the stomach, wouldn't that help with nausea? But studies have not shown it to be very effective. Now, could there be a small subset of people who are nauseous because they have a, a distended stomach where it might help? Maybe. But overall, for all comers with post-op nausea and vomiting, it hasn't been shown to be very effective. Transdermal scopolamine, in other words, the scopolamine patch, it's that little patch that goes right behind the ear, is definitely effective and even more effective when used in combination with Decadron. So if you do both of those things preoperatively, you put the patch on their ear and give them that Decadron early, then you really can get a nice combined effect. And when I say preoperatively, with the scopolamine patch, ideally they put it on the night before, but often they will get it when they come into pre-op. And the Decadron, we don't usually give until after induction, but still early in the case. Let's talk about NK1 receptor antagonists. So this is the newest generation of antiemetics. The initial was called a prepotent, 
and the dose was 40 to 80 milligrams PO. There's also Prepitant, 125 milligrams PO. And interestingly, some studies have actually found these to be even more effective than Zofran, than the 5-HT3 receptor antagonists. The half-life of Aprepitant is about 40 hours, so you can certainly give that preoperatively and still get that effect postoperatively. There's a new one of these NK1 receptor antagonists called Rolapitant, and that has a half-life of 180 hours. So we'll see. I'm sure it's going to be incredibly expensive, or already is. We certainly don't have it here. But as that becomes more available, that may really give people some prolonged action. There's some data about acupuncture. So there are certain acupuncture points and even pressure points that have been shown in some studies to decrease the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting. There is definitely some conflicting evidence around fluid. You'll definitely hear that giving people more fluid helps with preventing post-op nausea and vomiting. But the, the evidence is definitely conflicting here. So studies have looked at a generous amount of fluid, which they define as 15 to 30 mLs per kilo for a case, compared to a restricted regimen of 0 to 2 mLs per kilo. But some studies have shown a difference, and some have shown that there is no difference. So it's definitely not clear that you should be giving your patients a ton of fluid because they have risk factors for post-op nausea and vomiting. I would recommend doing the same fluid resuscitation you would do if they had, regardless of their risk factors, don't let this be something that changes the way you manage their fluid. There's certainly some downsides that we know well to overly aggressive fluid administration, which is why ERAS pathways, early recovery after surgery, which place a lot of emphasis on post-op nausea and vomiting prophylaxis, recommend being restrictive with fluids because there is no good evidence to suggest giving more fluids is helpful, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that lots of fluid can be harmful in terms of length of stay and complications postoperatively. So as I said before, a good rule of thumb is that each antiemetic, including counting propofol used as an antiemetic, will decrease the risk by about 20 to 25% of post-op nausea and vomiting. Haldol, low doses of Haldol, usually one milligram, either IV, PO, or IM, actually can be fairly effective for reducing post-op nausea and vomiting or treating it. Diphenhydramine is an antihistamine, so this is Benadryl, and also can have about a 25% reduction. We don't use it as much because of the side effects, and obviously we'll talk more about side effects in a minute, but those include sedation, dry mouth, dizziness, urinary retention, and confusion and delirium. But maybe for a young person, if you really were having a hard time controlling their post-op nausea and vomiting, Benadryl certainly has been shown to be pretty effective. The phenothiazine, so that's promethazine, which is also known as phenergan, and prochlorperazine, also known as compazine, uh, are fairly effective, but also their use is often limited by the fact that they can cause extrapyramidal side effects. The dose of phenergan is usually 6.25 or 12 milligrams, and the dose of compazine is 5 to 10 milligrams. And especially for phenergan, you don't want to push that dose. You would let it drip in in a piggyback because if you push it, you can really get uh, increasing risk of side effects. Reglan we already talked about, but in addition to the fact that it's not that effective, it also can have some significant side effects as well, including hypotension, tachycardia, and extrapyramidal symptoms. These, by the way, these side effects are 20 times more common in kids than adults. So really often want to shy away from using Reglan in kids, even if you are using it in adults. Some people will mention Versed, 
or other benzos as potential antiemetics, but there's really not great evidence for their uh, efficacy. Acupuncture we talked about. Another one is isopropyl alcohol. So in other words, having somebody sniff an alcohol swab. So that has been shown to help a little bit, but not as much and not very long acting. But if you were trying to help somebody while waiting for the nurse to get the Zofran or to get the Phenergan or to get the other anti-medic you were going to give, you could try having them sniff an alcohol swab and see if that helps. When I think about that, it makes me feel like it would make things worse, but at least there are some studies suggesting it can help a little bit. If you think that the post-op nausea and vomiting is at least partially due to opioids, so they've been getting opioids in the PACU and now they're feeling nauseous, you can think about a low-dose naloxone infusion, so somewhere around 0.25 mics per kilo per hour, and that at that dose should still leave enough pain control but can help take away some of the nausea that they can get from the opioids. Ephedrine is actually a pretty effective antiemetic, surprisingly, and can be fairly long-lasting if you give it IM. Now, obviously, one of the potential side effects of ephedrine is hypertension, and so you have to be careful. But what we used to do where I trained was to give 25 milligrams of ephedrine mixed with 25 milligrams of hydroxyzine and give that IM. And the hydroxyzine also had some antiemetic effects. So together, you got two antiemetics. And the side effects, the hydroxyzine can cause a little bit of hypotension. The ephedrine can cause a little bit of hypertension. And so together, those two actually kind of balanced out. We called it a V&E, visceral and ephedrine shot, and it worked fairly well. We'd give it to people with who were high risk. That may not be available everywhere, and I would certainly check with other people at your shop before trying to use it. All right, so we've gone through a lot of potential treatments and prevention techniques, and, and those are interchangeable in this sense. The same medications that prevent post-op nausea and vomiting are the same ones used to treat it. You usually want to use a different one than you've used for prevention. So if you gave someone Zofran at the end of the case, and now they are having nausea and vomiting in the PACU, you try to use a different medication, not just repeat the one you've already given. There are all different kinds of regimens that are suggested, but a lot of them have in common the suggestion that people with four risk factors should probably have at least three or more interventions. In other words, maybe you modify your technique, you do a TIVA instead of uh, uh, using volatile anesthetic, you do maybe two different antiemetics or an antiemetic and an acupuncture uh, technique if you have that available to you. So you try to use three different interventions. A prophylactic strategy recommended in um, the article that initially introduced the APFEL score recommends that for one risk factor, you just give for no risk factors, you don't have to do anything. For one risk factor, you give four milligrams of decadron and maybe a second antiemetic like Zofran at the end. For someone with two risk factors, you would try to avoid volatile anesthetics and give decadron and maybe a second antiemetic. Someone with three risk factors, you would avoid volatile anesthetics. You would give decadron and definitely another antiemetic like Zofran. Or if you didn't want to do the Zofran, you could do something like a scopolamine patch. And then someone with four risk factors, you would avoid inhalation anesthetics, you would give decadron, you would give an NK1 receptor antagonist, and a prophylactic antiemetic like a scopolamine patch. And you could, and then, of course, you can always think about adding Zofran to that as well. So 
multiple strategies like we talked about, multimodal. And then, as I said, anyone who has need of a rescue antiemetic because they actually do develop post-op nausea and vomiting would get something you haven't used yet. There's also a phenomenon called post-discharge nausea and vomiting. And that, of course, is what it sounds like, that even if you don't have immediate post-op nausea and vomiting, you may go home, especially from an ambulatory surgery, and then have nausea and vomiting at home, which could bring you back to an emergency room or back to the surgery center. And that can be problematic. Risks are similar. So being female is a risk, having an age less than 59, having a history of post-op nausea and vomiting, having received opioids in the PACU, or having had nausea even without vomiting in the PACU. Those are all risk factors. And if you have one of those, actually, if you have none of them, so you have zero of those five, you have 7% risk of this post-discharge nausea and vomiting. If you have one risk factor, you have a 20% risk, and that goes up to 28, 53, 60, and 90% if you have all five of the risk factors. So what do you do for these people at high risk? They're fine in the PACU, let's say, but they are at high risk because of these risk factors for post-discharge nausea and vomiting. So these are people you could consider giving Zofran oral dissolving tabs so they can use them at home or give them a prescription for them so that they can use them if they get nauseous at home. You might want to consider a scopolamine patch because that can give some longer-lasting protection. And as the longer-lasting antiemetics like the rolapitant come out, you can think about using those as well. All right, let's talk about side effects. So all of the antiemetics except decadron, and it appears that also the NK1 receptor antagonists don't have this issue, but the rest of them, Reglan, uh, phenothiazines like Phenergan and Compazine, um, Zofran, all prolong the QT interval. So you have to keep that in mind. If you have someone who's nauseous and they have a, already have a long QT, Really, the only things available to you, clearly you could do something like acupuncture, propofol is fine, and you can use decadron, and then maybe these NK1 receptor antagonists as well. Compazine and Phenergan, we mentioned, have extra pyramidal side effects, and if you get those effects, if you get that dystonia and those other extra pyramidal Parkinsonian effects, then you can treat either with Benadryl, which is usually very readily available, or benztropine. Or you can also use the dopamine agonist Pramipexol. So those are your options. Again, of those, the one most available most places is going to be Benadryl. Benadryl itself, as I said before, can cause sedation, dry mouth, dizziness, urinary retention, and then delirium in elderly patients is a, is a major risk factor or a major potential consequence of Benadryl. Reglan, as we mentioned, hypotension, tachycardia, and extrapyramidal symptoms that are 20 times more common in kids than adults and also doesn't work that well, so not a lot of reason to use that. And then the 5-HT3 receptor antagonists like Zofran have really as their main side effect just the prolongation of the QT interval, except, interestingly, the very newest one, which is called Polonacetron. Polonacetron, which sounds to me like a transformer, does not seem to prolong the QT interval and also has a half-life of 40 hours. So that'll be interesting to see as that as that becomes more common. Decadron, so again, nice that it doesn't prolong the QT, but certainly can increase the blood glucose. And there is some controversy over whether a four milligram dose has an effect on wound healing, but there is some thought that it may impact wound healing a little bit. Again, very controversial. Scopolamine, 
causes dry mouth, blurry vision, confusion, or agitation, or even delirium in older adults. So much like Benadryl having that, uh, those same effects, and you want to be careful in elderly people. And then, again, as I said before, the NK1 receptor antagonists, aprepitan, and the others, pretty low risk profile, can, has been described a potentially low chance of causing urinary retention confusion, but these are pretty uncommon. Now, they haven't been around as long, so we may see more side effects as they are used more commonly. All right, that's it for post-op nausea and vomiting. I would love to hear from you. What do you do in your practice? Do you use all of these, some of them? Do you have access to these new NK1 receptor antagonists and the new form of uh, Zofran, the uh, Polonisetron? Do you use them? How effective are they? Do you have a specific regimen you use in your hospital that you give all your patients or the ones with who are particularly high risk? Let us know. We can all learn from you as well. So check out the website, acrac.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can see all of the episodes and leave comments for everyone to learn. Maybe you'll catch something I said that was wrong. Certainly people have found mistakes I've made before and have posted on them, which is helpful for everyone, including me. So please make sure to leave a comment if you have anything to say. Also, you can join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the website, and you'll get notifications when there's a new episode and anything else I send around. And if you haven't already, please take a moment, go to the iTunes store, and leave a comment and a rating about the podcast. It really helps others find the show. You can always email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com if you have any comments that you'd like to share just with me. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.